Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rural innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, political servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speak Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Anthony Anderson, who has spent most of his life in the juvenile justice system as a guard, Jason Hill, author of a new book, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? And also, we'll be joined by community activist Willie Preston from Chicago's West Side. And uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight. 1-800-723-8029. Our program tonight coming to you from the studios of WCGO in beautiful Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us. Uh, obviously, uh, the world of politics today is focused on Orlando, Florida, where Donald Trump made his first speech since leaving the White House. And again, uh, throughout the broadcast, actually in the second hour primarily of our broadcast this evening, we're going to be talking about that and some of the things that he had to say. We'll also have a live report from Orlando uh, uh, from uh, Stephanie Tressel who is a well-known and regarded uh, talk show host here in the Chicagoland area. She is at CPAC, and uh, she's going to be joining us uh, during uh, that portion of the show. That will start in our second hour this evening. But uh, this evening, we're going to begin with uh, uh, a new book that that came uh, across my desk. And again, uh, today is the last day of uh, Black History Month, so uh, this will be our contribution to the discussion and uh, we will be talking about a variety of things related to race relations in the United States. But I want to welcome Jason Hill. He is author of that new book. It's called What Do White Americans Owe Black People? And again, Jason is a regarded professor at DePaul University. So, Jason, welcome to Beyond the Beltway or welcome back to Beyond the Beltway. Uh, what was your goal in writing the book? I didn't hear that question, Bruce. Could you repeat the question? <laughs> I think he asked, what was your goal in writing the book? Oh, what was my goal in writing the book? Oh, uh, the goal in writing the book was because recently there's been a lot of conversation about reparations that has been reiterated by people like Ta-Nehisi Coates and Ibram Kendi. <clears throat> and I, I wanted to take these reparations argument very seriously. And I know that the, the, the black community has been divided on this question of reparations is something due by the, the government to blacks. And I wanted to take the claims very seriously and to address them in the book. And this is what I do. And I, I happen to be one of those persons who think that uh, blacks are not owed reparations by the state. And what I do in the book is, is, is go back to the, the very founding of America from 1776 to show that although blacks were excluded from the, the, the pantheon of freedom, that the foundations for freedom were forged in 1776. But I focus mainly on the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the affirmative action programs uh, President Johnson's uh, right. War on Poverty and let the Great me, Initiatives. Let me ask our other guests. I'll start with you, uh, Willie. Willie, what is your answer to the question? Uh, white Americans, so what do they owe black people, if anything? I wouldn't I wouldn't put it squarely on white Americans. So mm -hmm. I think the, the, the appropriate question is, what does the, the American government, uh, all this country? 
Mm-hmm. And I think the American government, all this, all this country reparations for African Americans. Mm-hmm. And, and to and to my um, and, and to your guest here, I, I just want to you know push back a little bit on what he just said. He said the black he knows the black community is divided on reparations, and I I can't agree with that. I think the black community, by and large, is pro reparations for our, our people. I think where we're divided is is if we believe the government is capable of redressing his sin of slavery through a reparations uh, bill. And some people think it's not capable. I, I happen to believe we are capable. Okay. Let's go. A- Anthony Anderson, what's your answer to the question? Well, I agree with the professor on this issue. Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, no white person today had anything to do with slavery and no white person today any even owned slaves. And so I don't want to put this issue on the backs of individuals who have really nothing to do with it. If there are some issues with slavery and someone thinks that they're old reparations, then you go directly to that source. Otherwise, you know, it's it's wholly unfair to think that Americans, white Americans today, uh, should be on the hook for for some issues that happened, okay. you know, so let's early back, on in this nation's go, let's history. Go, let's go back to Willie. Willie, follow up on that, because I would say that that's the thing that I hear most frequently when the subject comes up is that, uh, you know, people alive today, they were not involved in uh, in any of the things that at least set a foundation for uh, inequality that uh, you suggest. So so I would I would follow that up by by by, by very quickly saying, listen. In this country, we do believe in um, we, we, we believe in passing down all the treasures through our family members, correct? If my grandfather were to leave a home, uh, my father were to leave a home to me today, mm-hmm. um, I could receive that home by, by birthright because I can inherit his property. And just the same with his bills. I would have to be responsible for all of his, you know, his bills. And I think the same thing is true. It's true that no one alive, we all know, was neither a slave or a slave owner. But the reality is, is there's no question that Black Americans, uh, African Americans, descendants of slaves, Adols, um, we were harmed. We were di- directly harmed through slavery and that there were white Americans and others who directly benefited from slavery. So what, that's what reparations is called. It's a repair for a harm that was done. Jason, and we still suffer from that repair. All of us on this panel do. Um, we we suffer from that rip, from, from that damage right now. Let me go so to no other- let me go to let me let me jump in and go back to Jason and ask him to elaborate a little more and respond uh, to uh, your uh, interpretation of uh, of the question and and the need for reparations that you've just heard from Willie. Well, I think the reparations was done. The right was wrong in, by the nineteen sixty four Civil Rights Act, where blacks were brought uh, full inclusion before the law. And I make the further argument that there have been reparative moments in affirmative action, in Black Studies programs, in in President Johnson's initiative acts where billions of dollars were dispensed to to Blacks uh, in the form of of welfare programs, that there have been reparative moments. And second, since the 1972 Employment Act, any damages that have been any form of discrimination afflicted on Blacks belong in courts of law, not in reparations claims. You know, I would like to add also, Bruce, that I think it's 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 wholly impossible to say with with definitive uh, agreement that most black people born after 1965 have absolutely had every right secured under the Constitution given to them. Now, prior to that, there can be some conversation. But anybody born after 1965, I'm sorry, but you you have every right that was afforded to us under this Constitution. Yeah. 
When you see, uh, and this is for everybody, uh, also for people that are listening and watching the broadcast this evening. When when you're walking down the street and you're approached by someone who uh, uh, needs help, uh, in many cases, at least in urban areas, that person is black. Not always, it's not not universal, but in, in Chicago, it is generally a black person asking for some help. When we come back, I want to hear from each of you how you react to that person. What do you think about and do you do anything about it? 1-800-723-8289. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation, it's your news, your nation. Your tween made you see. We are the boy. It's painful concert number three. We are the boy band. We're five and nineteen. We are the boy band. Always singing on key. You love your kids enough to take them to see their favorite uh, band. Love them enough to make sure they're buckled up in the back seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit nhtsa.gov/the-right-seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with Beyond the Beltway, and I want to go to Anthony Anderson to respond to uh, the question I asked before the break. When you're walking down the street and you see uh, a homeless person approaching you, uh, that person that you encounter may be black, may be white. I made the point that living in the Chicagoland area, most of those that approach me are African-American. But number one, how do you feel when someone like that runs into you or you run into them? What what? What goes through your mind? The first thing that comes to my mind is, how is it, Bruce, in this country with all of its opportunities, how is it that anyone can find themselves in a situation such as that person? Now, that's one side of me. The other side also says you have people, millions of people on a yearly basis are risking their lives and their families' lives to come over to this country because it's the land of opportunity. So how is it that someone that's native to this country can't see that is beyond me? Secondly, when you brought up the issue, uh, uh, I was in the car with my daughter just a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and, and we were going down, you know, one of the streets there. And the thing was, uh, a homeless person, you know, when you're making those turns and getting onto the expressways or getting onto yes. these uh, streets, right. they walked up to my car. And immediately what my daughter did was she started rolling up her window. I'm like, What's wrong? what do you roll up the windows for? Because there's somebody right there. I said, listen, he wants some money. He's homeless. So she immediately rolled down one window. I gave her some money to give to the individual. I honestly feel a sense of, you know, humanity when it comes to those individuals. But again, I, I find myself in a situation wondering how is it that somebody can make a decision, a rational decision, when you can wake up and be whoever you want to be in this country, and it can happen. All okay, it takes is your to, pure I want, will. I want and, to, and for I want me, to, it's it's a sense of, you know. People just have to be have to know where they're at and, and what's what's going on. Do you one, have fo- one follow up question to you? When you see someone like that, do you more than often give them some money, or is that rare? 
I'm sorry, Bruce, what did you say? I say when you see someone in that condition, you said in your story, you said that you gave him some money. Do you normally give someone money if they ask you for it? Yes, all the time. I okay. mean, I always have money. Good. On, so okay, it's good. not a problem. Uh, Willie, Willie uh, Preston, I want to go to you and, and get your same reaction when, when you run into someone on the street that may be uh, approaching you for uh, some money. You know, when I was uh, when I was much younger, I, when I was younger, I would give to any and everybody who asked when uh, I had it. Yeah. Now I'm more subjective about it because I think really where my focus is and I think where, where, where most folks' focus should be is changing the conditions where people end up in there so frequently. And you're right. And I, you know, it makes me, it doesn't make me feel well, but in the city that we live in, in Chicago, this is generally in, in my experience coming from my people, but that is not just, it, it is not, uh, 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 I don't look at this as a, as an individual who just made poor decisions or someone who just is blind to opportunity. I recognize that there are tons of people who were structurally conditioned to be poor. And I actually see it happening right now, repeating itself. Right now, when we see Chicago school children who are not able um, to be afforded the, the world-class education that the city of Chicago is capable of providing, when we see that certain children in certain communities still to this day have a greater quality of education. Willie, do and you, Willie, in your, in your case, though, in, 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 in your case, do you also think that there are, there are government programs that exist that you, that you pay for through your tax dollars that this person could utilize. I mean, there is a place where they could go to get shelter over their head if they wanted to, but a lot of times they don't want to go there because maybe there's a religious requirement. Uh, so, I mean, do you think about that, that, that person, although they look like they're destitute with, with no friend in the world, that the reality is that because of government programs, there are some people that could help them at that moment in their life? Absolutely. What I'll say is there are a ton of things that we can do immediately. And one of the things that we can do, even if you don't take the case necessarily of the homeless person, right, but you take the case of people that are poor, people that are working for, you could easily, people that are on programs, federal programs such as Section 8, they could easily be, um, we could turn those vouchers that they use to, to pay someone rent and make them homeowners. You know, the number one thing that you can get in this country that supposedly the American dream is to be a homeowner. And I can tell you as my as myself, my wife and I, we bought our first home a couple of years ago. It was the proudest, it was the proudest day of my life to open the door and allow my children to walk in and say, this is home. And you know what? It's a different mentality. You want to clean up in front of your home. You want to you want to take care of your community, take more ownership in it. That's a program right now that we could stand up in Chicago. Why are we allowing the government to give people housing vouchers so that they can give someone else sex, um, money every month and they take no pride in that property, they take no pride in that community? If, they, if we change that, allow those folks to use those vouchers to become homeowners with other stipulations that make sure that they go right. out and work, that's a program we could change communities right now for, for poor people. I want to go back to Professor Hill and let you uh, weigh in on the question that I asked before the break, uh, Professor, and that is, when you see a, a homeless person uh, that may approach you on the street, what what goes through your mind, and and do you help? Do you not help? What's the criteria that that you use when you're personally approached? 
Well, I'm a very religious person. I'm a humanistic person. So I, I always just out of a sense of compassion and empathy, I, I have to give. But, but Bruce, my first question is, what are the structural conditions that gives right, that has given rise to this? And I think that this country has systematically emasculated black men, first of all, by disincentivizing them from taking care of their families, going back to the 60s, by encouraging, by disincentivizing black women uh, from taking care of their own children by the state offering itself as a surrogate husband to black women, marrying them, marrying black women, marrying themselves as a state, and breaking up the family, right? Disencouraging marriage, the, the marriage rate between blacks and whites were the, the out of birth, out of birth wedlock was 22% before the 1960s, up until 1960. After 1965, and today, the out-of-birth wedlock among African Americans is seventy percent, and seventy percent of those kids are born out of born into poverty. So I think there's a great deal of emasculate. The, the black man has been emasculated by the state because the he wants to take care of his children, but going back to the 1960s, horrible programs where black women were offered as surrogate brides to the state. Uh, good black men were disincentivized from taking care of their children and the breakup of communities fostered by the state. The state has never been the friend of the black community. It's been the enemy since day one. I want to go to and, Anthony. And, and, and Bruce, to Anthony. Just, just to ahead. speak I'll, to what... elaborate on that. Go ahead. Uh, and, and just to speak to what the professor said, he's absolutely correct. You know, uh, I'm a product of, uh, of Chicago. I grew up, most people know, that I grew up in the Chicago Housing Authority. I grew up in the Henry Horner Projects, uh -huh. which used to be right across the street from the United, which is the United Center now, yeah. before it was the Chicago Stadium. And I saw firsthand that if you were a black woman and you lived in the projects, if you had a male living at home, the first thing they would do is they would take away your benefits. And that way they were dis disincentivizing two parent families. And so the professor is absolutely correct. I saw that with my own eyes firsthand. Why has it taken so long for government to react to that, Willie? If you agree, if you agree with that, do you agree with Anthony's well, think, comment? I'm I'm sorry. So yeah, I do agree with it actually, and I think that one of the you know the, the reality is is that government is run by humans, and humans are flawed, you know, and that is just the reality of it. I think that it has been fundamentally um, um, it's been a problem for African Americans in, in terms we haven't acted savvy, savvy enough politically. In how my do you how do you break the cycle? How do you break the well, cycle that Anthony just talked about? Well, it's it's quite it's it's quite simple actually. You 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 you, you go ahead and you fo focus on business and you and you stop. Um, to be frank with you, we have to stop giving away so many entitlement programs. We have to stop that. We have to incentivize business. We have to incentivize work. But the, that doesn't change the fact that reparations is still a policy that this country needs to put what forward. Does the what, does the black, what, what do the leaders in the black community need to do? Uh, Anthony, I'll start with you. Well, well, Bruce, here, here's the problem. Just this week, the University of Chicago had a study in which Chicago was named the most corrupt city in the United States of America. I thought they were just, third. I thought they were third. No, they were third in terms of the state of Illinois was third. Oh, the city of Chicago okay. was number one. The number one, okay. the number one. The number one corrupt city in this country was Chicago. The number three corrupt state in this country was Illinois, right behind New York and right behind California. And so if you look at it, you have to look at the policies. It is the policies that the blacks have adhered to over the years, over the decades, that have gotten us into the situation that we're in today. 
if black people continue to adhere to the same policies that we've adhered to over the decades and over the years, then we're going to keep on having these same problems, irregardless of which politician is in office. Black people have way too much compassion for politicians. Black people have put way too much trust into black leadership in general. And it's sad to say, but that most blacks have, have to the detriment of the black community, did a lot of things that really don't quite really make sense for black people. And for whatever reason, they continue to vote the same thing in, in office. Jason and I'm not Hill, saying that they're, Jason, you know, Jason they're, Hill, they, you they agree misled, but, but the problem okay. is they have mis been misled in terms of policy. Okay, policy Jason, has gotten us to this position and policy get, will get, up, get us out of this position. I want to get Jason and Willie to respond to that. Jason, you first. Uh, I I agree. Uh, I think that the black these black leaders are racial pimps, hucksters, and and exploiters of black people. I think black community members, from mothers to church leaders, and church and community organizers, need to take control of their communities. You know, they they know where the gang. We haven't even talked about the crime rates and the black and black crime. That is the biggest. Uh, genocide of the black communities it's not white cops that are going into these black or white people from the suburbs going and massacring black people it's other black people killing black people and blacks in their own communities know who these gang members are and it will take vigilance and it will take community leaders and church leaders and not politicians who don't give a hoot about black people all they care about is a voting block and coming in with some kentucky fried chicken every four years and you know so with some sauce and some watermelon like hillary clinton did I want, to know, come back, I, want to come back, I want to come back to that. We do have to break. I want Willie Preston to pick up on that because he is uh, an activist uh, on the west side of Chicago. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Chicago. Opinions are everywhere when you watch the news. But what about your opinion? Why can't you just get the facts to decide for yourself? News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America, a nightly newscast in primetime that doesn't tell you what to think. Seven nights a week, News Nation will deliver you news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. It's your news, your nation. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say, he's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me, but I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org caregiving for care guides and community. Support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. And uh, at this point of the broadcast, we let each of our guests take a moment to introduce themselves. And uh, we're going to begin with Jason Hill. Jason, uh, tell us uh, a little bit about your background and uh, what you what you're what we're talking about here tonight. I'm, I'm Jason Hill. I'm happy to be here with you again, Bruce. Um, I was born and raised in Jamaica, came to America when I was 20 years old um, to become a novelist and then ended up getting a PhD in philosophy and becoming a professor and writing a lot of books. My latest book is um, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. Uh -huh. And um, I write a lot on, on, on politics and on American foreign policy and ethics and, um, and also um, do a lot of work in human rights and, and some, some policy work also. So um, 
when, and, when and do a lot of political commentary. When you're in, uh, obviously you're coming from an academic, a professorial position. Um, are other professors around the country, do they respond when you write a book? Do they jump up and either agree or disagree with it? What, what sort of uh, reaction do you get from within the academic community when, uh, when you write a book, especially one with somewhat of a controversial title, uh, like uh, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Well, I'm a complete outlier in the in the academic community. I mean, I've written my I wrote my three first academic books that got me tenure in professor. And I realized, and I'm also a journalist. I write a column for different magazines, and then I wrote two commercial books after that. One one called "We Have Overcome an Immigrant's Letter to the American People." So, and I, I describe myself as an independent conservative. Um, you know, I I traditionally voted for the the, the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. but um, I'm a conservative independent, and which means I'm owned by no one. My my colleagues uh, consider me a complete outlier. They don't, most of them don't speak to me. Um, really? Because I, I, no, because I don't adhere to the kind of left-wing, radical, crazy orthodoxy that's espoused in universities today. I'm not a Marxist. I'm not a communist. I believe I'm a great. So if you if you walk Marxist. into the if you walk into the faculty lounge at DePaul University. And uh, you're either going to have a bite to eat or you want to just sit and relax for a while. There isn't anybody that's going to come up and engage you in conversation? No, they'd probably look the other way because I'm also very pro-Israel and um, I'm pro-America and I'm pro-capitalism. And, uh, you know, I, I think unlike a lot of my colleagues who are liberals, who are part of a managerial class, who think that I believe in black people, by the way. And I think that black people are an incredible race of people who through slavery have managed to, through their own agency, have made tremendous sacrifices and have uplifted themselves. They're part of a managerial class, liberal class, who think that Blacks uh, don't have, who want to expropriate the agency of Black people and want to take care of them. And I think, I say, the best thing you can do to Black people is leave them alone, get out of their way. They can take care of themselves. They don't need a liberal class to take care of them, to take care of them. They have been taking care of themselves since they arrived on slave ships. And they don't like to hear this, and they like a victim narrative. And I don't believe blacks are victims um, of anything. I think they've been victimized, but I don't think they're victims. And so, you know, a liberal class don't like to hear this. And when I, when I coming from Jamaica, twenty, I didn't have a victim story. And uh, when you, when you, when you believe in the agency of, of of a race that you represent, and you tell people that blacks have all the capabilities to uplift themselves, and you point to, for example, they don't, you know the entrepreneurs and the black owned businesses and hotels and private schools that mm-hmm. blacks ran uh, during segregation and after emancipation um, and, and were successful thrivers. Um, they discount this narrative. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very much of an outlier. Okay. Uh, uh, let's in the, go in the world. Let's go to uh, Anthony Anderson. Anthony, you've been on this program uh, for several times over the last, I would say probably five or seven years. Uh, tell everybody a little bit about your background. You've referenced, uh, where you come from, but elaborate on that and how you sure. got to the sure. Marine Corps and how you I, got I, here tonight. Sure. I grew up in Chicago. Chicago has been my hometown for the last 50 years or so. I'm um, 50 years old, actually, but I've been in Chicago. I was a, a Marine Corps veteran, uh, veteran of Operation Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Uh, I've a uh, state employee. I've worked in several correctional facilities, um, Danville Correctional Center. I've worked at uh, Joliet Correctional Center. Uh, St. Uh, what is it? Valley View Correctional. 
Mm-hmm. And just recently, Warrenville Correctional Center is where I re- recently retired from. Mm-hmm. And I've been with I was with the state for 27 years before I retired uh, last year in August. So I've been around uh, for some time now. And uh, it's really sad to see, Bruce, uh, how far or how far we have not come in terms of our in terms of blacks and understanding and policy in Chicago. It, it really is, even though if you look at the uh, the, the um, leadership in Chicago, is mostly black. You cannot. If if this was, if if a person were to look at it now, they wouldn't can understand why are things the way they are. And if you look back into the eighties when I was around, even when Harold Washington was the mayor back when I was growing up, you know when you had the uh, you know the the, uh, the wars with the aldermen and all that stuff, and you mm-hmm. you didn't realize that they were all in the same party. Right. And now they're all in the same party, and it seems like we still haven't gotten anywhere. And so you know I've been around a long time. I've been around politics forever. And I've been a Republican, it seems like, all my life. So, What have you, you, know, what have you observed background. over the last 25 years that you just described? Uh, yes. What, what difference have you seen, if any, in the, uh, in the type of person that is incarcerated that you have had to guard? I mean, is there, are, they, are, are they more violent? Are they more disturbed? Are, is it, are things getting better? Is there any positive well, I think sign you na- see? Nowadays, Nowadays, you, you see, especially within the youth and the juvenile system, a lot of those individuals, 90, I would say even 90 percent of them didn't come from, a, you know, a two parent household one. And even more didn't come from even having parents. I mean, it's just the, the fact of the matter uh, that parents that cared, at least for their, for their, did their you, livelihood. Did you? Did you come did I, from a two parent household? Uh, no, no, no. One parent household. But it was the understanding, you know, when, when my mother told me. You know, I'm going to hit you so hard. God is going to get the news late. You know, my, my first question was, well, how's that happening? I mean, if, if I'm praying and you praying, how is he going to get the news before I get the news? So, you know, that's 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 what I grew up under. You know, it was it was the ride. You spared a ride. You spoiled a child. You know, if DCFS was around during the days that I was growing up, it would be a totally different story. But those are the things that made me who I am today. You know, uh, I, I have no regrets. I, I love my parents. And, you know, it, it is what it was. And so it made me who I am today. And I, and I am forever grateful for it. In addition to being in a country that really, you really can't wake up tomorrow and be whoever you want to be. And so I was always of the mindset, I am going to grow up and be whoever I want to be in regards to what the conditions and what the circumstances are. And I I wasn't born in, you know, with their two parent family. I wasn't born. I didn't know we were poor until I grew up as a matter of fact, but we still had sense. The one thing you do not do is go out there and, and act as though, you know, you don't act under authority. And and that's what we're missing today, sadly. We have youth and individuals out there not respecting authority. And that's the biggest problem that we face, I believe, in our community. I want to go to uh, Willie. Willie, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, who you are. We should mention, by the way, because uh, uh, we're open and honest around here. You and I are Facebook friends, and uh, we, we really have never met face-to-face. But uh, I've always been impressed by your, uh, your posts and uh, your reaction and a little bit about your background, because you're you're very involved in the in the school situation in Chicago. You you're on television quite a bit when uh, things are, are screwed up in the public school system, which is just about all the time. So so let, let me let me make one one important correction. Um, I hail from the great south side of Chicago. South side. I'm um, sorry. I was I was born in Inglewood and raised primarily there. Um, with uh, my mother and father, they were they were married, but they split when I was a child. But both of them remained active in my life. I was either with one or the other, uh, my brothers and I, or, or myself. 
Um, I stand I have, I, I am married um, to my wonderful wife, Brittany Preston. Shout out to Brittany Preston. And we shared six children together. Uh, we have kids ranging from our 16-year-old to a four-year-old. And so uh, that's my high school sweetheart. And we have been, you know, traveling this road of being uh, involved in our community ever since I, we first put our children in, in, in early child care to now where we have a high schooler. So that's why I stay involved, prim, you know, for the most part at this point in what's affecting Chicago's children because what? that's my life. What are the, I, I'm what raising are the children outside? with my wife right now. And I do agree with some of what the gentlemen are saying. I think that there's a disturbing trend politically. Um, in Chicago, it's a historical problem in our community, and I think that, that that's rooted in machine politics, um, where Black folks have uh, essentially had apparent representation that looks like us, but they haven't really held autonomy. They haven't really been able to speak um, for the true interest in, for our community because in Chicago, politically, you come from a town where a politician told me nobody wants you unless someone sent you. Yep. And essentially what that means is no one has real leadership hasn't been allowed to rise up in Chicago. It's been it's been it's, it's, it's been staunchly um, forbidden for folks to come up who actually want to serve um, their community. It is a, it's a very closed party and our people uh, primarily haven't been able yep. to even enjoy independent leadership because especially in my day and age, I'm 36, you know, folks. My, myself, I'm a former candidate for state representative. When you run for public office in this in this city in Chicago and in, in Cook County, you're talking about a, a local raise. They'll raise a half a million dollars to stop you, which yeah. is what happened to me. And so, when you have the influx of money under the auspice of Mike Madigan and a few folks inside the local Democratic Party, you yeah. you will rarely see someone who actually is risen from our community who can relate to mm -hmm. their neighbors and go down to, you know, our state capital or the city council right. for quite frank and say, no, I can't go for this because this will do, this will harm Ms. Johnson, my neighbor. This will harm little Michael, my, my, my neighbor down the street here. Right. Uh, so got, that's why, gotta, you know, you'll see. I got to interrupt. I got to interrupt here, Willie, because we're going to go uh, to a break. Uh, when we come back, you, you, you referenced uh, Anthony, uh, the loss, you know, when your father wasn't in your house. And, and that's a story we hear a lot within the black community. My question is, is there anything that can be done or, or who within the community can rise up and take on the role of a father in black families? Back you shortly. should form your own opinions when you're presented facts without bias. That's what we call news. Every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America, news has a new primetime home. News Nation, without all the talk and without an opinion, so you can make yours. It's not how it used to be, it's how it should be. News Nation, seven nights a week on WGN America. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com because it's your news, your nation. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. Ugh, what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. What are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. It's been a long time since we've had an adventure in the forest. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. You're right. I should get out. Yeah, the forest is not that far away. Hey, Mom! Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. 
Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. I asked the question before the break. If what we've heard from Anthony is accurate, and I think most people listening to the program have probably heard that there has been an exodus from uh, the black family of, of, of men for many, many years, uh, somewhat of a sy- systemic problem uh, that Anthony has talked about regarding the government and uh, incentives for uh, uh, women and men to act in the ways that uh, they acted in the 50s and 60s and beyond because of government incentive, incentives. But my question to you is, uh, who has replaced uh, the father? And, and is, there anyone, is there anyone in society, whether it's a clergyman, is it an athlete, is there anyone that has been successful in, uh, in filling the role of a father? And we're going to start with you, uh, uh, Anthony, because you said that you, you grew up in a home that did not have a father. Right. I think, Bruce, uh, unfortunately, for, for, for black America, for the most part, uh, what has replaced black men in the black family has been uh, gangster rap, has been uh, the uh, the entertainment industry, uh, has been everything but a male figure in that person's life. And so, and, and not to mention the fact that the street gangs have taken over tremendously in the black community. And so that's what has taken uh, the place of uh, the black man in the black family. Can you hang on, now, just, hang, hang on just one second. I want to get the reaction just to that from our other guests. Jason Hill, uh, weigh in on, on your thoughts on that, and then we'll go to Willie. I think he's absolutely right. First of all, I think that, you know, masculinity is just under assault in this country. And men, it's hard to be a man in this country today because I think the feminist movement has just gone, and especially the hashtag Me Too movement, that insidious movement has gone way too far in waging a war against men. And I think Anthony is perfectly right that, uh, that the, 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 the search for a father figure has gone into a nefarious register that is, that is gangster, gangster and, gang, and, and gang members. So I think what has to be restored is a healthy appreciation for masculinity and for, and for the authoritarian, in the best sense of the world, male figure. And this kind of uh, division, this kind of egalitarianism that is being spread uh, in by progressivism, uh, I think is 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 a bunch of malarkey. And and, and just very very quickly, the second thing that I want to the second thing that I want to say is that, um, you know, as someone who used to be a radical atheist and is now very very religious, I I think that we're all children under God, and this this notion that you know, it's only black men that can be provide mentorship for um, children is also a bunch of malarkey. I, I would say that uh, get rid of the, promote charter schools and, and, and give tax vouchers to, to, to black parents and tax, tax breaks for education, get kids in the private schools where they can get proper mentorship from, from, from male role models because they're not going to get it in the public schools. Um, I want to go to Willie. I want to go to Willie to to, to react uh, uh, to, to the, the question about uh, uh, whether he agrees with uh, uh, Anthony's assessment of the role of uh, a gangster and gangster rap as replacing fathers and and masculinity in a black home. Oh, I absolutely agree. In the cases where where the father has been completely absent, yes, uh, my father was never completely absent. He was always present, and so even as I tried to allow 
uh, my idols to be gangster rappers or, or, or game bangers, he wouldn't allow it. And so I do, I think it's absolutely crucial that we keep black men inside the house. That's why I'm dedicated to being a father to my children, my nieces, my nephews, when their fathers weren't always able to be present and, 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 and community members and children now who lack a father for whatever reason. But let me say something. I analyze it's different than I think my, um, my, my co-panelists tonight. You have street gangs, as you cited, and rappers, as they look too. But the two things that children see in those two, in the, in, into those two folks, are success. And this is why we do have to refocus as a community. And yes, the government has a role to play a certain as making certain that black men are in a position to be successful. That's why we need to focus on trade schools inside of our. We start with the children today who will be men tomorrow. We need trade schools in our in our high school. Hell, we can have them in our grammar schools. They're intelligent enough. We need junior first responders inside of our communities. Why is it that our community is so um it's so against being the, the the cop. It's because they have they don't have people who care about them, who respect them more importantly, in in uniform enough inside of their own communities. We need term limits in order to achieve any of these things. Since we want to talk about policy, we need term limits. There's no way that someone can amass as much power as the as the the former speaker Mike Madigan, but to have been in power. For fifty years, do we this need? Is do we need? Do we need something? Because uh, in the last segment, uh, you talked about the the, the difference in uh, in unwed uh, un, unwed mothers and 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 families uh, w- without uh, marriage, and uh, you know, and and marriage exists in some black homes; it doesn't exist in others. Uh, is, is that something that the black community should strive for? And yeah, and how you know, and how aggressive absolutely. have the ministers <laughs> been? To that point, Bruce, you know, if based on what the professor said earlier, which he was absolutely right in his assertion, that it was the government who tore down the black family in the early to late 60s. It should be the government to incentivize marriage within the black community now to repair what was done back in the 60s. Because everybody knows an intact family is the best thing for kids growing up in today's age. Now, whether or not uh, they'll, they'll make the right decisions, who knows? But the fact of the matter is, their decisions will get better over time, especially with their the two-parent household. And so government needs to incentivize marriage within the black community, just as they disincentivize marriage in the black community in the early 60s. That is a controversial comment and uh, one that I would suspect might get some phone call reactions. So we're going to pick up on that in the second hour of the broadcast this evening. We should also mention the big political story is Donald Trump's speech in Orlando at CPAC today. And when we come back, we're going to be switching gears for a little bit. We're going to be talking about that. Our guests who are currently here, uh, they'll be weighing in on that as well. And we'll also be joined by Stephanie Trussell veteran talk show host here in the city of Chicago. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Another full hour of Beyond the Beltway is coming up right here. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Hour number two continues. And uh, we're going to be back with our guests, Willie Preston and Anthony Anderson and Jason Hill. They'll join us uh, in about uh, about 15 minutes, and we'll be back to our conversation. But again, uh, the big news is that uh, CPAC met in Orlando, Florida today. And uh, this afternoon, uh, President Trump was there. So was uh, thousands of conservatives, including Stephanie Trussell, who's one of the best conservative talk show hosts uh, in the country. And Stephanie, nice to have you with us back on Beyond the Beltway. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. You're much too kind. Um, I'm just so excited that I can bring a little bit of man on the street kind of reporting sure. right here from beautiful Orlando. 
What uh, what was the general? Uh, first of all, before we talk too much about what happened or what the president Trump had to say today, was there anyone else on the conservative agenda down there that got uh, uh, a, a very large round of applause or sort of impressed people in any way? Well, the, the usual Jim Jordan and Ted Cruz types and people just being very inspirational. I mean, we're all in a weird space right now as a result of such a brutal election cycle and uh-huh. um, between us being labeled kind of conspiracy theorists and everybody kind of gave up and said, okay, let's just accept the election. So it was so great to hear people, like-minded people. This is a safe space for conservatives. Me being from Illinois, there are not a lot of places where I can um, proudly support my president and my party without being you know, attacked or canceled. So this was something that I think we all needed just to be in, in a space with like-minded people saying, what's our mm-hmm. next step? And we, they, I couldn't go into the long list of amazing um, the speakers that we had and one after another. What's so great is that it is on YouTube if anybody wants to know what they uh-huh. missed at CPAC. But it was very important for me to be in the room with Donald Trump. I was fortunate back in October, there was a Back the Blue Black City event and Trump spoke uh-huh. on the South Lawn to all of us. And it was his first time speaking after he had COVID. So to be in the room, for him to address us the first time after he left the White House, I felt doubly blessed. And even before he got there, I mean, I got here Thursday night, Trump sentiment, a lot of people wearing Trump masks, Trump gear. It's very obvious that we still love our president. And today, just feel the deal for us. I mean, we needed to hear him and he needed to hear our, our support. And and, uh, and just, the, just the feeling in the room, we honestly... It, what gets me about Trump, I mean, I think he showed, he did, I shouldn't say things, he showed Republicans how to be strong Republicans. And it seems like he he's only been gone six weeks, and our Republican leaders are falling right back into what they do. Yeah. Speckless, I'm going along to get along. And he just reminded us that, hey, I'm still in this fight. There's still more work to be done. Did he give you, that, a, you know, did, he, did he live, did he give a list of people that he thinks should not be in the party? How much time did he spend uh, uh, with uh, oh, yeah. maybe retaliation? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he's still Donald Trump. With the, being in the White House or not, of course he told us. The people that voted to impeach him, I mean, how dare you? He reminded us that the Democrats, we may not agree with them, we may not love them, but they stick together. Not one Democrat ever spoke up against Obamacare or any of his policies. But we have these big Republicans that cannot wait to jump on board to bash our president because they didn't like him in the first place and maybe they got on board just because, you know, it was hard not to. But the moment that he's gone, they can't wait to stab him in the back. They're going right back to what they do, which is just try to secure their little position, secure their power. And they're really not there to speak for the people like Donald Trump did for four years. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, uh, what was the reaction that, uh, that Governor DeSantis of Florida received? Oh, he was, he opened the event, Welcome to Florida, isn't it great to be in an open state? And coming from Illinois, I certainly, uh, I'm looking forward to that. The only thing, just to be negative, I have to say something negative about the event. I've been going to CPAC, I believe this is my sixth one, and and it's organized very well, it's put together. But unfortunately, we're in Orange County, and the the hotel that we stayed at was very adamant about mask policies. Okay. So as a person that only wears masks, if I absolutely have to, mm-hmm. and most of us, I would just say, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but I think a lot of conservatives believe in our freedom. But we, I didn't think we'd have to wear the mask once we were in the convention mm-hmm. space where it's just us. I want to respect the rest of the hotel. Mm-hmm. So that's the only part that was kind of negative, and they just seemed to be, you know, just like they hired mass police just to almost follow us around. Mm-hmm. So overall, it was a great venue. They had to get us out of D.C. because 
Florida is a state where you can actually gather X amount of people, which was nice. But, um, oh, you know, I feel just very just inspired. I feel recharged. And I just I, I, we know what we need to do. And that's am I, to keep fighting because. Am I correct, Stephanie, that that uh, you, you are solidly on the Trump train for another run in 2024? Oh, well, just keep this between me and you, Bruce. Okay. I'm sure no one else is listening. I'm teasing. But <laughs> I, I love the four years that we had Donald Trump. But I think that his role now is to vet candidates, to fundraise, to go out there and inspire America and doing everything that he's done for the last five years since he came down at Escalator. Do I want him to run again? I know there's a revenge aspect to a lot of conservatives. That we need to get them back. But I don't know. If I were him, would I want to put myself through everything that, that they put me through? Uh, I think that we need to be looking at, okay, who's next in the party that maybe because Trump, you know, if if not Trump, then who? Mm -hmm. But I would just like to see him just to be free and to be able to be Donald Trump without them criticizing everything. And they Mm -hmm. would just be so laser focused on taking him out even before he got in. And, And I just think that he's done so much for our country. I appreciate his four years, but I would rather just see him as a figurehead and just someone that's really inspiring people and showing people mm. how to be bold Republicans. Yeah, well, also, I mean, given given his age, I mean, there's, there should be the uh, the evolution and the development of other, uh, you know, people within the party who, who I think understand that you're not going to win re-election without the Trump people. And, uh, and they would argue that, uh, you know, I mean, Donald Trump got 74 million uh, votes, uh, but, you know, Joe Biden got 80 million votes. So, there, there is an yeah, issue right. of just basic arithmetic uh, that has to be considered in any election, and certainly he will be a, a dominant figure. But uh, it seems to me that other members of the party should be allowed to at least flourish or, or test their 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 metal. And and uh, part of that is you know amassing a large crowd and amassing uh, some money to keep them going. And that's that that's that's a test of leadership as well. Yeah, the Democrat Party, I'm surprised. It was always a party, They ever since Obama came around, the youthful party. And now, you know, 70-year-old, 80-year-olds, and however old uh, Joe is, I, I don't even know, he's well into his 70s. Yeah. What, what's very inspiring about CPAC, every year there are more and more young people are showing up well-dressed, coming from their colleges, and mm-hmm. that inspires me. That's the future of the Republican Party, because mm-hmm. Democrats start indoctrinating children in kindergarten. And here we are, brave young men and women, that go to a liberal college and they come here just to be in a safe space or they don't mind. They're bold enough to wear their elephant lapel pin when they're on their campus. And mm-hmm. I'm inspired by the next group of young people like Charlie Kirk's group and all these people that I constantly meet. And mm-hmm. also as a, as a black woman, when I came to CPAC the first time, there were a few blacks, but Trump made the tent so much bigger. They're more Hispanic, they're more Asian, they're more everything. Everybody wants to be in the on the Trump team because you can say whatever you want about Trump, whether you agree with him or not, but you cannot argue with the fact that that man loves America and he wants everyone to do well. And that whole uh, even questioning of the model of putting America first, everyone puts their family first. And that's what America is to him, his family. He wants us to do well. And then as a result, you know, we lift you know, all boats, as they say. And he just gives everybody the inspiration that you were born here. That's nothing you can't achieve if you're just willing to work for it. Stephanie Trussell, I thank you very much for offering your report live from Orlando, Florida, from CPAC this evening. Stephanie Trussell, a veteran talk show host here in the Chicagoland area. And, uh, Stephanie, we look forward to having you as part of our uh, Beyond the Beltway panel in the not-too-distant future, maybe in the next few weeks. And, again, thanks for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly.
For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it. Seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation. It's your news, your nation. Your tween made you see. We are the boy. It's painful concert number three. We are the boy band. We're five and nineteen. We are the boy band. Always singing on key. You love your kids enough to take them to see their favorite uh, band. Love them enough to make sure they're buckled up in the back seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit nhtsa.gov/the-right-seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Brewster went back on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us. Let's go to Ray, who is listening to us uh, on the radio this evening. Uh, no, Ray is not there. I'm sorry. So uh, we'll forget Ray. And uh, how about Dave? Is Dave still standing by in the great state of uh, Washington? Or is he? Uh, let's go to line three. Ray, Dave, are you there? I am. Can you hear me, Bruce? Yes. And you've been waiting a long time. So uh, we'll give you your nickel's worth. And uh, I mentioned that our guests, Anthony Anderson, Jason Hill, and uh, Anthony and-, and Willie Preston are also continuing to join us this evening. So go ahead with your question. Oh, that's great. Well, first, uh, Semper Fi to the fellow Marine on the board. Okay. Because uh, I was a Marine also. So I'm happy to see that panelist. Uh-huh. Um, I just wanted to mention that uh, as far as the reparations, um, and first, actually, as far as you talk about single-family households, and especially single, you know, women without the, the male figure staying mm-hmm. uh, in the relationship, and then you have parents, uh, single-family parents, uh, and how that's that's expanded. Well, both that and many other negatives in society, I think, are all expanding because of one thing. It's be, well, one is the loss of religion and people uh, having that that bond to sort of a more normal normality. I would say mm-hmm. uh, I kind of see it as a shaming. And personal accountability. You used to have more shaming, and, and right. you know, people were ashamed if they did something that was going to kind of violate either the church or even their, their family, shame mm-hmm. their family. And now, if, if, you try and, if, if people were trying to be shamed or, or held to personal accountability, that's, that's counted as bullying and hate speech. You can't, you can't tell somebody, hey, you made a mistake, you shouldn't have done that. And I think that's kind of how we're ending up with so many, you know, children, whether they're white, black, whatever. You know, you have these kids having four or five kids when they're 22 years old. And no parent there. Uh, that's a big part of the problem we have, you know, Dave, in society. Uh, Dave, I want to, I want to let our, stay on the line. I want to let our guests respond to that. That's a, that's a very good point. We'll start with Anthony Anderson. Do you agree with what uh, Dave is talking about? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the caller is absolutely correct. Um, that intact family is, is key. Uh, the nuclear family is going to be key in order for for blacks to to move ahead or any family for that matter. And so, yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree with this assessment that the uh, and, and also the aspect of, of shaming, uh, you know, not that you want to bring make any disparaging remarks, remarks about individuals. But at some point, uh, you have to feel a, a, a sense of uh, responsibility for your actions and having a sense of responsibility for your actions will go a long way. And not only the black community, but any community, especially in our community. Willie Preston, your response. Exactly. Yeah, no, I I think that they, I think that's right. You know, I, I remember um, even when I was a kid, you know, when I came from the streets of Inglewood, let me just be frank. And, you know, I was a kid 
when my parents separated, I ran towards the streets and I wanted to be the toughest gangbanger in Chicago. Yep. But there were certain things that I would not do in front of Miss Ivory. Why? Because we had a community and I, w- I didn't want her to be disappointed. I didn't want her to tell my grandmother. Miss Ivory was an elderly woman in my community. Mm-hmm. What we have now is a breakdown in communities. When you have a breakdown in community, regardless if it's a poor community or a wealthy community, and where there's no, there, there's, there's, there's no, there's no, um, no one that I guess you can say shame you or that you could, you care to disappoint then you have free reign to do any and everything. So I think the call is right into the degree that we do have to have community where people have enough relationship built in with people where they can, they can say, hey, man, you're messing up. You can't do that. But if we don't have stable communities, you're never going to be able to get um, people to have that type of courage to say, I mean, what's wrong with you? Why would you do that? Yeah. If, you know, Or on conversely, hey, how can I help? Professor Hill, do we have to bring shame back? To some respect in the you know in all communities, not just in the black community. You got to, got to turn your microphone on. I don't think we have to bring shame back. What I think what we have to do is bring back an objective sense of right or wrong. I think our our, our universities and our K through twelve, which have become national security threats, have been breeding ground and indoctrination centers for something called cultural relativism where a p- kind of permissiveness that there, there is no such thing or, as right or wrong, what adjudicates truth claims are your feelings. And I feel, my, I feel that my, I want to elevate my high school opinion and my sophomoric high school opinion to the level of knowledge. And so my feelings constitute rightness and therefore I'm right, has become an epidemic in our society. So I don't think it's really shaming. I think we need to get back to objective first principles, first of all, and to have a sense that there are objective criteria for adjudicating truth claims, that some, some things are right and some things are wrong. And we have gotten to a point where when a student in a classroom says, this is just my feelings, we have punished teachers now, especially with this ridiculous culturally responsive teaching and lead program uh, initiated and ratified on February 17th by the Illinois school board, that if a teacher tells a student, you are wrong, she or he can get in trouble. It's cultural relativism that has run amok in our society that is leading a bunch of village idiots and and leading students (laughs) to become, you know, uh, uh, psychological weapons of mass destruction in our society. That's the problem. I want to go back to you, uh, Willie, because you are uh, you're you're sort of a known figure in Chicago because you've been on television quite a bit uh, speaking out against uh, the Chicago public school system, which is still closed uh, to the most to the most part for in class teaching. Uh, tell us a little bit what's happening with your children uh, on the south side of Chicago, and uh, what 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 messages are you hearing from the school system and from school teacher unions about getting your kids back to school? Well, what's happening with my children is, thankfully, we have collectively come together. Um, and I, when I say we, I'm talking about parents to force the, the mayor to have a backbone and to open our schools up somewhat. So I got a preschooler that's going back. We have um, some of my elementary student children that are going back. And we have high schoolers that still have no, no end in sight when they'll ever be able to come back. And the reason why, Bruce, that I fought so hard and continue to fight so hard um, for our schools to be open and simple. 
We have an achievement gap for black children. And there's no way with my good conscience that I can sit down and advocate for children to not be properly educated in my community for political reasons, because we know what's the next result. These, these children, these teenagers are gonna be adults in the next year or two. They're gonna be unskilled, uneducated, and they're not gonna be prepared to be able to take part in the greatest economy in the world. And through no fault of their own, but simply because teachers union have the, have the might, mm-hmm. they have the might right now to say that we're not gonna open schools in major, in major cities right now because they don't want to. Do, and that's not okay. So we're school- fighting and we're, okay. and, and we're winning by the way. Do school is, children, do, here's a question for everybody, do school children around the United States who have not experienced in-classroom teaching in all 50 states, do they need a special course to be taught at their at an incoming college to bring them up to speed on all the things they may have lost or never been taught in the last 18 months? Uh, Anthony, yes. starting with you. I think... I think, unfortunately, that, that that may be the case, Bruce, because so much instruction has been lost over the last few months. I don't see how these guys ever catch up. And it's just recently that they've been going to school on, a, on an interim basis. And so, yes, absolutely, something has to be done to get these guys up to speed, or else we've done a great disservice to the children of this country and to the children of the future. Uh, uh, Professor Hill, how, how realistic is it that that such a remedial educational program would be implemented by, by any college on the receiving end of uh, students from the last 18 months. And not very realistic based on the colleges. Colleges are going to fight back. I think what's more realistic is to have students just simply repeat the year. Okay. And I know that parents are going to fight this, but you know, uh, this is quite common in other countries that are facing the pandemic that have the students just repeat the year, uh, especially if you're going to a public school. Uh, if you're rich enough to send your child to a private school, I don't see why you can't pay, pay to have them repeat the year. There are a lot of colleges that don't have remedial programs because they have to, in order to keep their upper tier status going, they don't have remedial mm-hmm. programs. So I think it's it's more strategic to have students who are falling behind to simply repeat the year. Willie, what and, do you think of that idea? No, I reject it. And, and, and Polly, I mean, if we could do a, a, a national universal policy, which we I doubt we could, then perhaps, but we probably won't. And I and I think that it's 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 um we have to we have to move um in more in the direction of what you what you proposed is bring the kids up, but you know have some type of remedial courses in recognition that quite frankly our children lost a year um a, a year of, of instruction. I think that'd be that that'd be more because it's not just a you know we also understand that education isn't simply what school building you enter, right. but it's also it's 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 social it's social development as well. And so, what does an eighteen year old look like repeating high school? It may be tough. Whereas as opposed to them going into college with some with some remedial courses to bring them up to speed, I think that that would probably be more of a natural trans transition for them. Anthony, I want to go back to something you talked about in the last segment, last couple of segments, and that is uh, the uh, the uh, the extrication of men from many black homes, uh, households, and that many years ago uh, it was a government policy and program that basically led to generations of black men leaving their homes uh, because of a, a lack of incentive or they were, they were coerced out of their, their homes. My question to you is, 
because the the out of wedlock rate is so high in the black uh, and brown communities, and it's pretty high in the white communities as well. If if you're if you're 18 years of old, 18 years old, and you have fathered a child, okay, what incentive do you have? To stay with that child, other than a moral responsibility, which is pretty hard to pin down, are there things, as you say, government incentives, are there government incentives that we should have to keep that unwed father in the home to help raise a child with the unwed mother? That's that's the, that's the question I want everybody to respond no to and, and think about it. Uh, and uh, also, uh, Dave, thank you very much Opinions for your questions. Opinions are everywhere when you watch Thanks, the Bert. news. But what about your opinion? Why can't you just get the facts to decide for yourself? News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America, a nightly newscast in primetime that doesn't tell you what to think. Seven nights a week, News Nation will deliver you news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. It's your news, your nation. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say, he's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me, but I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org caregiving for care guides and community. Support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks very much for joining us tonight. And uh, I can report to you, as I have been doing for the last couple of weeks, I finally got my uh, COVID shot last Friday at the University of Chicago after a false start a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I got the Pfizer shot and... Uh, Everything went well. I was a little uh, a little fatigued in the afternoon, but I had a nice long nap and uh, no other side effects. So I'm uh, waiting to get uh, the next one in mid, uh, mid-March, but uh, that's my COVID report to you. Uh, before the break, I asked a question of our guests. Let me introduce them. Uh, Anthony Anderson is here. Uh, he is now retired, but he has spent much of the last 30 years in the criminal justice system as a guard within the juvenile uh, courts and, and prisons and uh, jails of uh, Illinois. Willie Preston joins us. He is a community activist and very active in his local school council. He's become quite the media celebrity in the Chicagoland area, speaking up to try to get students back to school. And uh, also, uh, we have uh, Dr. Jonah Hill, uh, Professor Jonah Hill, uh, Jason Hill, rather, I'm sorry. Uh, and he is author of a book called What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. And uh, he is a professor at DePaul University, where uh, he told a story earlier in the program that because of his conservative beliefs, uh, he is uh, somewhat of an outlier and uh, they don't treat him very well at the uh, school faculty lounge. So uh, that's kind of a depressing. We, we've heard similar stories from uh, Mike Miller, who is a frequent guest on this program from DePaul. And uh, he's not told it from a first-person point of view. But again, uh, being uh, someone who works in the fields of academia, where you think everyone has got uh, maybe above average intellect, it's kind of, it's kind of sad to hear the story of someone being uh, basically ostracized because of their of their political beliefs. Uh, before the break, I, I proposed a, a, an idea, 
and I'm going to let Anthony, I'm going to let you pick up on it because it dealt right. with what what do we do? There's a huge issue of uh, unwed mothers and unwed fathers in right. the United States. It has led to the systemic sort of breakdown of the black family. And my question is, uh, is there some incentive, whether it is government or some foundation, is there any incentive that should be provided to a young father in that particular case to keep him with the unwed mother to begin a, a life together with or without marriage, let's say without marriage, because that, that brings up a, a moral issue that may be a little bit difficult to swallow. But is there any kind of incentive that could keep those two people together and begin a, uh, a, a newly defined black family? Does that make any you know, sense not, at all? Not, not that I would like to incentivize uh, uh, bad or, or some would say irresponsible behavior. Right. But we're, we're, we're at that point now. So let's assume that we're at the point where now you have an 18-year-old man or woman who was now have a child out of wedlock or for whatever reason, and now he decides he wants to take care of his family. Uh, normally, I am against the idea that government should step in and uh, and do you know be this so-called father figure, but we have se- we have seen and, and time has shown that if that does not happen, then we know what will happen. Right. Uh, a lot of times, what will happen is uh, the father would no longer have any any place in a child's life. A lot of times, the 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 person the, the girl will have nothing to do with the father. And so we we end we we start this vicious cycle. And you're and so likely we, to see that child somewhere in the prison system, perhaps. Right. And so what 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 should happen? And not that not that the government per se has to take over the program or what have to incentivize this, but there has to be something in place to show this young this young couple uh, that hey, listen, now that you've brought a life into being, uh, we feel that these are the best steps that you should take in the, in this life and in this child's life. So we can have, uh, you know, so so you guys can become, you know, if not model citizens, but at least people that are going to be productive uh, throughout their lifetime. And so, yes, there should be something set aside to show that, hey, listen, we realize and we understand that you may have made a decision that would be contrary to what, you know, you would normally do. And here's how we can help. And here's how society can help. And so under those circumstances and under these conditions that we find ourselves in, I am absolutely for some sort of intervention. Yeah, and also there would be some time limit. It wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be forever, but it might be for a couple of or three years. I want to go to right. Willie, Willie Preston. Respond to the same idea. Is it a is it a good idea or is it a cockamamie idea? No, I think I think a great idea, and I can tell you as a young father and have my peers. I, I start in families now, and and, have, and my brothers are. Um, you know, one incredible policy that could 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 really incentivize marriage would be at the tax code. If you had, right now, that's a disincentive to be married through the tax code. If you were, uh, if you, if for instance, they have the, what they call the earned income tax credit. What it encourages is um, a parent to say that I'm the head of the household. And typically a lot of time, in most cases, that's the mom. And what it is, is you see this part of the year where families, especially low-income families who, 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 who um, qualify for this earned income tax credit, they're fighting each other over this lump sum of money that the government tenders in the form through tax. If we had an incentive for the earned income tax credit to be credited to marry 
um, couples who filed jointly, mar married, married and, and filed jointly, that could be a huge government incentive that we should explore mm -hmm. and see if that would incentivize marriage. Another program that we could look at here in the city of Chicago, why don't we have a program that says work for earth? What I'm saying is if you have ex-offenders who, who have a large population of low-income black communities, such as Auburn, Gresham, and Inglewood, where I live, right. why don't we say to them, if you work for a year, we have a billion-dollar CHA budget, we'll, we'll, we'll give you an opportunity to become a homeowner. Because the pride in being a homeowner is something that is powerful in this country. And, uh, and our people, our forefathers recognized that early on. It's mm -hmm. called the American dream. It right. changes people's minds and attitudes. It builds community. Allow these men to work and don't have it so strictly attached to credit because, quite frankly, a lot of us are behind the eight ball in terms of finance and credit management because, right. quite frankly, the schools didn't teach it. Right. Our parents were, um, were were ignorant to it, and we are following suit behind them. By the time we figure it out, it's too late. It's one of, by the I way, have that's, a question that's for Bruce. Bruce. That's, that's one of the biggest uh, defaults or faults, I should say, of the public education system. You go mm -hmm. through public education in this uh, United States, you don't know anything about the economic system. You don't know anything Nothing. about taxes. You don't know how to balance your checkbook. And again, uh, your parents probably didn't know how to do it either. And again, it's just a, it's a vicious cycle. You wanted to ask me a question and then I'm going to go to uh, Professor Hill. Go ahead. I, I wanted to ask Rula a question in regards to the community. Uh, do you see politicians within your own community pushing this nuclear family, pushing the two-parent family? Because I, I haven't seen that lately. What what do you see? Willie? Is that to, oh, is it to me? Yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, well, no, quite frankly, the answer is no. That's the short answer. No, I don't. Um, okay. I, okay. I, 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 can, <laughs> I just want to know. I can, I can expound, but no, that's that's the short well, okay. that, one of the problems is you don't have, I mean, the the Democratic Party certainly is not a cheerleader for uh, intact families. It, it, it isn't. No. It isn't. And so there's one one half of the political climate in the country is never going to go down the road that I've just suggested. And by the way, I don't think it has to be exclusively government. I mean, there are foundations that give billions of dollars to ideas that are just, you know, they're just... They're like laboratories. They're suggestions. But if if they threw a couple of billion dollars or several billion dollars into an actual program that would basically help bootstrap a young unmarried uh, mother and father, I mean, they would have to agree that they're going to stay together. I mean, this is not just for slam, bam, thank you, ma'am, and, and we're off. You, there, there, there has to be some kind of commitment there. Professor Hill, I want you to uh, weigh in on my uh, idea. Well, I, I really agree with Willie. I mean, and I, would, I wouldn't I would just limit it to, to blacks. I would limit it oh, to poor whites as well. Absolutely. That is anyone who is 18 and is is below the poverty line right. and, is, and earns a certain income should earn, uh, should qualify for an earned income tax credit. I mean, I don't want to get the government to, look, government is the poison in the first place. And I don't want to, you don't create a cure by injecting more poison. So I think something like a tax of a vote tax credits for um, is, is, is a good way to go. I think a voucher for education is a way to go to give these young couples uh, an incentive to uh, send their children to schools of their choice. Uh, if they want to start off by, I think, a great way is to send your young child to a charter school and not to the public, the horrific public schools that exist in our in our country, which the government doesn't care about blacks. But, but part of this program has to be more than just 
sending kids to uh, uh, you know a special school uh, or charter school. It has to be about physically having a man and a woman who have fathered a child, n- nurtured and living in the same place, so that that child can see hopefully a, a a loving relationship, maybe a little less stressful because of some financial incentive that's going there. So that those two people stay together, so their children, whether they're whether it's the you know the out of wedlock child or other children that may come their way, they don't end up and uh, become uh, you know guests of uh, a juvenile justice uh, jail somewhere in uh, in any state in the United States. Well, look, I think I think one of the things that we could do it right now in the city of Chicago, there's an initiative that CPS has called Chicago Schools Initiative, and what it is 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 basically trying to to um, bring uh, our neighborhood schools as the hub that they once were when I was a child and certainly when my parents were, um, were children. And what we need to do is we need to use these spaces, these school buildings as community hubs and yep. encourage marriage and encourage other things. We need to have financial literacy for parents who have small children and have those programs inside of the school. We need to have, we need to really have work programs inside of the school that encourage young black fathers to become tradesmen so that they can earn a real living. You know, it's I one thing agree to- with you 100%. Those schools, every, every community school should be open 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Back shortly from Chicago. You should form your own opinions when you're presented facts without bias. That's what we call news. Every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America, news has a new primetime home. News Nation, without all the talk and without an opinion, so you can make yours. It's not how it used to be, it's how it should be. News Nation, seven nights a week on WGN America. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com because it's your news, your nation. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. Ugh, what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. What are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. It's been a long time since we've had an adventure in the forest. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. You're right. I should get out. Yeah, the forest is not that far away. Hey, Mom! Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. back in Chicago. Thanks very much for joining us. And uh, we have a caller on the line. Let's go to Johnny listening to us on KTSM in El Paso, Texas. Johnny, how are you? I'm fine. How's the, wa- how's the water and the heat? How's the water and the power? Are you okay in your house? I'm one of the people who are over on the West Coast of okay. Texas. And we did not we were not touched by that at all. Oh, we were the part that wasn't in the grid. Very good. Well, congratulations. So it doesn't happen to us at all. Very good. Uh, I, I called a few weeks ago urging you to take the shot, so I'm glad to hear you did it today. So welcome to the club, buddy, because I like you. I want you to be around a while, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the uh, reason I called is about the, the last segment. I know you moved on, but I get right to it. Sure. But I don't know what's going on in Chicago, so I didn't get all the information. But here in Texas, the teachers, I have a niece who's uh, in her late 30s, and she has two kids. And uh, she is the only breadwinner, so she has a problem not going back to work, too. But she swears, she and her other colleagues say they don't care what the union says, they don't care what anybody says. If they don't get a shot, they're not going back to school, period. 
That's the issue. They keep saying that the teachers need to be safe, but we're not hearing the word shot. That's what she tells us. Mm-hmm. So what's going on in Chicago? Uh, let me ask mm-hmm. Willie. Willie, what is the latest with the shots for Chicago teachers? Uh, they, they all want it before they go back to school five days a week, but uh, no one has agreed to that yet, have they? No, no, um, no, they haven't. And I don't think that they should. And I think that I'll just make a small correction, Bruce, um, respectfully. All of them don't want it. Now, the union obviously speaks for all of the all of their members and the union has called for the shots. But we all know that there is a serious um, level of, 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 of shot phobia. And that's very prevalent inside the black community because of distrust in the um, of, of, of the health system in our country. Right. And so I've met a ton of teachers who simply don't want to take the shot. And so it is really what, what we hear a lot of is people saying they, they want the shot before they can go in and now they don't want the shot. The goalpost is constantly being moved. So what happened is the mayor did acquiesce uh, um, and go further with the union and, and, and said they'll give greater testing. Um, they'll, they'll do more tests per week. They set up uh, hubs of testing sites exclusively for teachers, which is a good thing, and I don't oppose it. I want to make certain that the teachers are safe. We want to make certain that our children's future are, um, futures are safe, and I'm sitting at home and barely logged into computers, or, or even if they are logged in full-time, that's not going to work. The kids are falling behind. They're going to have lost skills, and a lot of our teachers, um, they're aware of what's happening in those mm-hmm. classes uh, and what's not happening, and what's not happening is a lot of our children are, are matriculating properly. Yeah. Well, again, go ahead, Johnny. Uh, back to you. Any any final word you want to say? No, I, well, I'm just saying I, I I didn't know that there were teachers out there who uh, didn't want to take the shot. And I, I know about uh, people yeah. in the black community feel that way. Matter of fact, I have some relatives in Chicago now. I've been trying to twist their arms to get them to do it, and they keep talking about the Tuskegee Institute. I took the the Tuskegee experiment. I tried to tell them. In the Tuskegee situation, it wasn't that they gave black people shots. They wouldn't give them shots. That's why. That's what it was all about. So they confused. I tell them to read up on their history. Well, isn't, isn't, it, isn't, well Johnny, isn't, Johnny, isn't it Johnny, also, go, go there's ahead, also, um, there was also some discussion from our, uh, from our, from, from the mayor was floated out um, that, that getting the shots would be a mandate for teachers to return into the classroom. And then our teacher union pushed back against that. So they say they they want the shots before they return to the class. And then in the next breath, they say, well, we don't want it to be mandated for us to come back in the class. So it's all it's it's all confusing, which is why we need to make certain that the mayor has a firm position and that they follow the science. The CDC has said that we can safely open our schools without shots. They were very clear. And this is why I believe myself and many others in Chicago are fighting for our schools to be open by following the science. Well, also, it seems to me that uh, we should look to the president uh, who has said that he wants to follow the science. But in this particular case, he's, he's <laughs> not he's not following the science, Anthony. Well, you know, I, 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 I just think that the, the Kentucky governor, uh, Andy Bashir, uh, who has prioritized teachers uh, to great controversy and has has vaccinated the majority. I think there are just about three districts that have not been mandated because what's not being discussed is that, you know, the suicide rates among our young people are going up. Uh, the mental health, mental health crisis among these young students. I mean, as a college professor faced this in the classroom where the depression rate is unprecedented, uh, the, it's, it's crazy. So, I mean, 
the, the teachers unions, I mean, I, I have a particular view about teachers unions. They should all be abolished and, and, and done away with. They're the worst things that you could afflict on young children today. But I think the governor of the state of Illinois needs to follow in the footstep of, of um, Governor and, Andy Bashir and, and, and prioritize teachers and have them vaccinated and have them return to the classroom and have our kids return to school full time. I no. think, I think, I think, I think personally, uh, in hindsight, most of these governors and most of these mayors, if they look, if they're looking at the, the school situation as it is now today, I think uh, they would have probably uh, had a different course of action as it relates to opening up these schools. The schools, the mayors want to open up the schools, but then there's way too much pushback from the unions. And as long as the unions are in charge, you're going to have this situation where we have here where everybody's doing a double talk. And so mm -hmm. for the most part, mm -hmm. uh, again, I, I believe most of the mayors want the schools to be open, but they have made it almost impossible right. because of the positions that they've taken in the past to reopen those schools. That's right. And mm -hmm. also, I they, agree. They, they built, they I built agree. their cases. And, and just, they and have built clear, their cases. Uh, they've been built I their think cases. That would be, you know, I, I don't think that that is, is fair and I don't think it's wise. I think that it's, if, if, if the, 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 to, to prioritize the teachers over all other citizens and all and all of our other workforce is dangerous and short-sighted in my judgment. What about what about the low-income people that have worked throughout the entire okay. pandemic? They're not immune. They can. They, these are the people that I have to interface with or have to. Willie, we are we are running out. Willie, we're running out of time. I want to thank uh, first of all uh, Johnny in El Paso for calling in. Thank you very much. And Anthony Anderson, thank you very much. Always good to have you back on the program. Jason Hill, author of the book, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Radical Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. That's the book. Thanks very much for joining us, Professor. And Willie Preston, community activist, Facebook friend. Willie, you got a nice response when you told people you were going to be on Beyond the Beltway. I think you did a nice job tonight. We look forward to having you on again. Our thanks to Connor McKnight for, McKnight for his assistance in the production of this program. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Evanston, Illinois. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. 
My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.